Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Hello. Hello, everybody. I'm going to do the Bible readings. Um, So the first one we have is Exodus, if you want to follow along. Um, There's some pew Bibles or if you've brought your own or your phone, whatever. So yes, Exodus 16, verses 1 to 18. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And the second reading is John, chapter 6, verses 35 to 48. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at this last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Thanks for reading, Lydia. Uh, do keep John chapter 6 open in front of you if you attempted to close your Bible. Open them up again. Open the app back up. That would be a really good thing to do. Uh, good to see you. We are, you've joined us today, week two of our new series, Jesus According to Jesus, as we work our way through these seven famous I am statements that Jesus makes that are recorded for us in John's Gospel, the premise of the series, I shared this last week, is that uh, we live in a world, in a culture where um, Jesus, although many may not believe in him, he's still something of a popular figure. Um, he's, you know, turns up in books all the time. His name is like appears in more books than any other name in recorded history. Um, people still like images, if you can call them that, of Jesus and plant them on T-shirts. He's still kind of around. And people have all these ideas about who Jesus is, what his mission was, why he came into the world, all these sorts of things. And we can endlessly speculate about what we think those reasons were. But the idea with this series is, what if Jesus told us why he came himself, who he is, what his mission was, what his purpose was? And so rather than us speculate, we're thinking about Jesus according to Jesus. Jesus makes these famous I am statements, seven of them, recorded in John's Gospel, and from today, uh, for the next seven weeks, we're working our way through these I Am statements. Last week, we just looked at two verses, the first two verses of John's Gospel, uh, where we just met Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, and he was God. We are listening to, as Jesus speaks, we are listening to God himself, the Son who came from heaven in flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We are hearing Jesus. And so that's what we're hearing as we look at these seven statements this morning. Um, You know me, I like to get you guys to chat because you don't really chat very well amongst each other. So it's about promoting conversation. I'm just joking. Um, I want you to turn to the person next to you. Here's the question for today. Um, What is your like craziest, wildest dream? You know, when you have those moments and you think about your craziest, wildest dream. I don't know, a two-story, beautiful home by the beach. Um, Just talking to Carl this morning, you know, maybe your craziest, wildest dream is watching Australia beat India in the next little while. Who knows, you know? Um, Maybe it's you, you know? You see yourself as the one to score the winning runs against India. What's your craziest, wildest dream? Have a quick chat to the person next to you, um, you know, within reason, um, about what your craziest, wildest dream is for about a minute and a half, and then we'll come back together. Okay? Is Is that okay? Go for it. See what you can come up with. Have a quick chat. Okay. Get you uh, to come back together, you crazy wild dreamers. I'll, uh... Clearly a lot of crazy wild dreams happening out there. Um, if you're new and you're visiting us for the first time wondering what is this church all about? What are they doing this for? This is pretty standard practice for us. Well, you know, at least when I'm at the front to get you talking. Um, and I just, you know, this is my classic line, this may, that, what we just did then may or may not have anything to do with what we're talking about today. Um, you just have to wait and see. Um, but uh, how about we come to God, uh, to the Lord in prayer uh, this morning as we look at his word. Let's come together. We come, O Christ, to thee, true Son of God and man, by whom all things consist, in whom all life began. In thee alone we live and move and have our being in thy love, 
That is our posture, that is our prayer. That we come to you, O Christ. We come to you, O Christ, this morning, and some of us need to come to you for the first time. Some here this morning need to return. But all of us need to come. And so we pray that as we come to you in your word, we pray that you'll be gracious to speak to us, to meet us here. And Father, you've promised that you'll be among us by your spirit and, and through your word, and so we pray that, you would not, uh, that we would not waste our time together, Father, but you would give us just the word this morning that we need to hear, perhaps just the promise that we need this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we all have occasions to make promises in life and hopefully, more often than not, we are able to deliver on those promises. Um, as my children get a little bit older, at least the, the two eldest ones, as they get a little bit, a bit older, um, and I get occasionally asked to go and speak at various things around the place, um, I've started to try and sort of encourage them to kind of come along with me and join in the fun of watching Dad give sermons. Um, what could be more fun? I mean, you keep turning up. No, like what could be more fun than my kids, 12 and 8 or 9, watching Dad give a Bible talk? Um, I ask them to do that and I say, look, it's going to be a special trip. We'll go away together. Sometimes it's overnight. We can stay at a hotel and, you know, when mum's not there, we can eat whatever we want. We can do all these crazy things. And so I was asked to speak a little while ago um, at something and I said to Stella, hey, why don't you come? If you come with me, if you listen to Dad give a sermon, we'll go and get a burger after, and maybe we'll go to Mecca Cosmetica and Sephora, and we'll, like, you know, you can hang there with your Frank Green drink bottle, all that sort of stuff, you know, um, for, for hours. And, you know, like one sermon. I mean, I think listening to sermons is better than Mecca and Sephora and burgers all put together. Stella, not so much, right? So anyway, Stella, on this particular occasion, she came along and she sat through a talk. She didn't look very impressed the whole way through, but she was pretty excited to end up at Mecca and Sephora and all those things afterwards. But at least, right, at least for one moment, I was an A-plus dad, short-lived, but I kept my promise, right? We have some pictures, right, to remind ourselves of, of how good it was. I can say, here you go, Stella, look, I kept my promise. And we can go from there. One promise made, a promise fulfilled. Of course, sometimes even as parents, we make promises that we don't fulfill. And as children, we make all sorts of promises that we don't fulfill. But isn't it good, right, that as Christians, when Jesus makes us promises, he always fulfills them. And you know what? The promises he fulfills are even better than burgers and Mecca and Sephora. There are lots of ways to get into our text this morning, John chapter 6. We could focus our whole time on that one I am statement, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And we could see how it connects all in with the, the bread of life, the bread discourse and teaching through that section. But I want us to notice that at the beginning and end of our section, John chapter, 30, John chapter 6 verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then bookending this section, Jesus says, verse 48, I am the book of life, of the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And in between those two big statements, Jesus is in the business of making promises. He makes promises to his disciples. He makes promises to his opponents. And by extension, he makes promises to you and me sitting here this morning. I want us to notice this morning Seven promises that Jesus makes to you. Seven promises that Jesus makes to you. And you can count on every single one of them being true. Every promise finding its yes and amen in Jesus. Seven of them. Here we go. Number one. Promise number one. You find it in verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then Jesus says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Promise number one. Whoever comes to Jesus shall not hunger. Hunger, that's a promise. Whoever comes to Jesus shall not hunger. Now, in the context of John chapter 6 and what Jesus is saying, the context is loaded with bread. 
loaded with bread. Bread is in the air. You can smell it. My wife and I, we live in Prospect right next to a place called Chanel's, which has this phenomenal bakery. And I slide open the back door almost every morning really early and bread, fresh baking bread. It's up my nostrils. It's on my skin. And I'm like, I'm not going bike riding this morning. I'm just going to the bakery, right? Yeah, it's just, so the context is bread. There's bread all over the place. First, we have the feeding of the 5,000, probably like 20,000 if you include the women and the children at this massive event. And they come back from this feeding and they are following Jesus because they've had loaves and they're filled and they're thinking, this is a good deal. This guy, Jesus, he's like a fish burger vending machine, right? You just go to him and his fish burgers coming out everywhere. They want more bread. And then Jesus brings them back to think about the Old Testament. That's why we had Exodus chapter 16 read, where Moses was leading God's people in the wilderness and God in his mercy provided God's people with this bread, this manna from heaven, as they made their way from uh, the Egypt through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And Jesus in this moment is postulating, he's saying, I'm greater than Moses and my bread is better than the manna. So the whole context is filled with bread. And Jesus says to them, you want bread? Good. You're hungry for bread? Good. But listen, Jesus says, I will give you better bread and you will not go hungry. Have you ever noticed the thing about eating that you always want to do it again? Have you noticed that? You eat and then you want to do more eating. So sometimes you eat breakfast and then you want to eat lunch. And then you want to go back a bit later for dinner. And then you want after dinner, you want some dessert. And then you want like late night dessert. And if you're like me, one of the top five reasons to love McDonald's is 24 seven, it's open. So when you have a cheeseburger craving at midnight, off you go. You know, we just, what we eat. And then we snack in between eating, right? You eat and then you have another meal and then you're eating, right? And you think, oh, I've eaten so much. I could never eat again. And then what happens? Two, three hours later, you're eating again. Christmas. Christmas wasn't that long ago, right? You know, a couple of months ago. I mean, everyone has this experience mostly. Christmas Day, you sit down and you eat and you eat and you eat. And then you're eating so much that you fall asleep, right? And then you go, you wake up, probably better do the dishes. And as you're doing the dishes, oh, I'm never going to eat like that again. And then what happens? Like you notice the leftover turkey and you go, okay, I'll have a bit more into the third stomach. I don't know, you know, every three hours, let alone a whole day, you eat, and it happens every time. So it's amazing, Jesus says, you eat this bread that he offers, you'll not go hungry. What does that mean, not hungry? It means Jesus never runs out. Jesus never shrivels up. Jesus never gets old and moldy. Jesus is not a perishable food item. Whoever comes to Jesus, the bread of life, will not go hungry. First promise. Second promise. Uh, You see in the last part of verse 35, whoever comes to Jesus shall never thirst. Obviously the meaning is similar, right? Parallel statements, one with food, one with drink. Jesus is the wine that never runs out. He's the water that never dries up. Jesus is the water in the desert that quenches your thirst when the world is offering you sugary soft drinks. Coke. We're not sponsored by Coke, by the way. Um, Coke. If you're out of town from overseas, you maybe call this soda or pop, I don't know, soft drink. And you know, you've seen all the studies, right? You know, you've heard your parents tell you ever since, I don't know, you're about this tall, right? Don't, don't drink all the soft drink. It only makes you thirstier. Like I still remember, like it's, my mum is ringing in my ears right now. Drink the water. It quenches your thirst. The soft drinks don't, you know. And it's true, all the acetic acid in them, all the sugar in there. I mean, it tastes good, right, on a hot day when it goes down, the freezing cold can of Coke. But if you're in the desert, right, and someone says, here, Coke, drink it. You know, even mountain dew, by the way, like it's not really dew from the mountains, but it still tastes really good, right? I mean, you know what, it's easy. Like, I'm told, you, you drink that. But if you keep drinking this, it, keeps, it makes you thirstier and thirstier because of the way the saliva interacts with it. You just keep getting thirsty. Our world 
is constantly offering you sweet, sugary drinks in the desert. Here, drink this, take it. Sex, sweet, sugary drink. Take it, sports, follow your sports team. Here, take it, your, your family, your job, your house, your looks, your hair, take it. And you take these drinks in the desert and the world is constantly telling you they're going to satisfy. And you know what? You take the first sip and yeah, it's good. It's better than water. Oh, we can have water anytime, anytime. It's good. In small doses, sure, it's good. Small proportions. Just like all those things that the world has to offer, many of them are good gifts from God. And soft drink can be a good gift from God in the right proportions, in the right time, and the right measure. But ultimately, they're going to leave you thirsty if that's all you drink. And if you expect right from sex or food or money or house or even our families that that's going to satisfy, you're going to keep coming back wanting more and more and more. Jesus says, only when you drink from me will you never be thirsty again. Now, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that you never feel disappointed in life? No, not at all. It means essentially two things. Number one, it means that we will have ultimate satisfaction for our ultimate longings if we drink from Jesus. Ultimate satisfaction for our ultimate longings. Have you ever considered that maybe the reason why the world is not satisfying you is because we were made for something more than this life? You ever follow, I don't know, those stories? They're on streaming channels and things like that where you follow you know, a rock band or a band or a rock star and you kind of go in behind their life and you, you follow their life and all that they do. And um, they're almost always sad kind of tales. They were famous, they sold out stadiums and they were into the hardest kind of drugs and they were rockers and they were boozers and they slept with pretty much anything that kind of moved and they were wild people and so many end up, well, in a sad state. You know, who are more like gods or goddesses in our contemporary culture than maybe sports stars or famous singers? Tens of thousands of people screaming at you, singing your songs. Is it any wonder that among those people there's such high rates of depression and dysfunction and addiction? Maybe, just maybe, we are not fit to be our own gods. Maybe we're not satisfied with our own worship. Again, think of your greatest, craziest dream coming true. What is it? Your craziest dream coming true. A house by the beach, a house up in the hills, promotion that you've been waiting for your whole life. It's a certain, I don't know, sort of ideal family scenario. I don't know, maybe it is for you, like hitting the winning runs in the final test in the Ashes series in England at Old Trafford to take home the urn. What is it? Think of that craziest, greatest dream coming true. It wouldn't be enough. It would not be enough. When you talk to those people, you read some of the articles, the people who've had those things, and they, they say the very same thing. Yeah, of course, it's better than a kick in the head, right? But it would not be enough. Only Jesus is enough. You'd still be thirsty. You'd still be hungry. Ultimate satisfaction for your ultimate longings. That's what it means. Second, it means eternal satisfaction for your sins. Eternal satisfaction for your sins. There are, there is nothing but thirsty people in hell. I don't just mean physical thirst with fire, right? That's part of the imagery. No, I'm thinking of thirsting for happiness and satisfaction. They're thirsty for recognition. They're thirsty to prove themselves. Do you think that the people in hell have come to their senses? They haven't. You think they finally see their sins and see their ways and no, they haven't for all eternity punished for ongoing sins even there. Thirsty still for pride and recognition. Thirsty and never having a drop of satisfying water to drink. Jesus said, whoever comes to me will never thirst. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Here's the third promise, verse 37. 
All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Oh, by the way, last year I might have unhelpfully set you up. You know, when you came here last week going, oh, I just want to hear some Greek. And I made your dream come true last week with some Greek. No Greek today, but still got to think hard, right? You coming with me? Like, still going to think hard. Um, I want you to think carefully, right? For this promise and promise four and promise five are going to touch on what we call the doctrines of grace, right? Reformed theology, or maybe if you think like this, Calvinism, right? Look out. Um, Maybe that's old hat to you, right? Maybe you're in this church. You're at City Light Church, North Adelaide, because you're like, yeah, Reformed theology, Calvinism, that's my tribe. Like, I'm with my people. This is where I belong, right? Um, Yeah, right. And maybe... You're here despite all that, right? You go, I don't feel actually that's like, that's not my tribe at all. Um, That's not my group. That's not really my theology. But someone really nice invited me to church today. And that's kind of why I'm here. Maybe you're here right now and you're thinking, I've never even heard that phrase before. It's never even mattered to me before. I just love Jesus. I love the Bible. I love to sing. And we've got some good musicians. And that's why I'm here, right? Regardless of why you are here, Listen, and maybe this truth is something you've never understood. Maybe it's something you've never liked, but you're like Jesus, right? Well, let's hear what Jesus has to say. And let's see how all these promises fit together. So this promise, all that the Father gives to, Je- all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. There are three parts in that transaction, right? The Father has a certain number of people to give. That's implied. Number two, they are then given to Jesus, and then three, they come to Jesus, right? The infallible progression. God has a number of souls, they're given to Christ, and those given to Christ are then obliged and will come to Christ. Jesus is absolutely confident in this logic, which is why he says in verse 37, all who come to me, like not some, not many, not most, All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's confident in this progression because he's confident in predestination. Jesus understands there is a choice prior to your choice. I chose you. You did not choose me. They're the words of Jesus, not only to the first 12 disciples he chose, but to all his disciples. You notice here there is no indication that the number appointed by God is based on some foreknowledge of our coming. In fact, we'll see in a moment, it's not. We see that this this choice is effectual. All that the Father. The fact that the Father has some and he gives them as a gift, as an inheritance to Christ, is enough to ensure that all those will come. This is not just making you ready with an ability to come, but rather effectually, infallibly, those who are given to Christ will come to Christ. Got to never forget here, right, that we're talking about, when we're talking about election and predestination, that it's in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We are chosen, we are predestined in Christ. And don't you like the language here? All that the Father gives me gives me if you have faith in Christ genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you are of the elect you are chosen and if you are of the elect you were a gift from the father to the son if you're chosen you were a gift from the father to the son ever thought about that the father from eternity past with a set number of his chosen ones. This all here in verse 37, those elect, those predestined to his son. Here, son, is my gift to you. This one, that one, those, these people, that family, from those tribes, from that tongue, from that nation, my chosen ones, to you, Christ. And I entrust to you You will be their surety. You will be their salvation. You will be their, together with the Holy Spirit, inheritance. And all that are given to Christ will come. 
Not one will be wasted. Not one will be ever lost. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. So the progress of coming to Christ starts in eternity past with all that the Father has given to Christ. The beginning of this salvation, the beginning of your salvation is not with you, but with God. Which leads to promise number four. Whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. Never. None is wasted. None is lost. No one is turned back. He will never be cast out. Now, it's important to understand this, especially with the promise that we'll come to in verse 44 in just a moment. Because when we talk about election, when we talk about God having a certain number, God having chosen some from eternity past, what some people immediately fear, right, is that we're going to come to Christ and he's going to say, uh-uh, sorry, didn't choose you. Like, you're not in the right spot. You need to go somewhere else. I don't know if you've heard the joke before. You get to heaven and you say, someone says to you, okay, well, are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? Are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? How'd you get here? The person says, well, uh, you know, I was never quite sure how when I was on earth to kind of settle whether I come, whether I was sent and, um, you know, whether I was chosen. Um, and so, well, I just, I'm just going to go over to the chosen line. And then you come here and you say, well, they say, how did you get here? And they say, well, I just decided to go over here. I said, you know, they said, come here. No, 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 you belong in the other line. So they go to the other line and you say to the other line, how did you get here? And will someone say, well, someone sent me. No, 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 you belong in the other line. You get it, right? Some of us hesitate between the two opinions to figure this out. Some have this mindset, right? Well, we'll just get to heaven and I'll figure out how I got here. And things figure out in heaven. But these truths are revealed. Jesus reveals these truths to us for a reason, for our confidence, for our assurance, not for doubting. And one of the things we fear is that we're going to come to Jesus or our loved one will come to Jesus and he'll say, no, 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 I didn't choose you. You can't come. But notice the language here. Yes, the Father has a certain number of chosen ones given to the Son who will come. But now he says, and all who come will never be cast out. Jesus will never say to you or to anyone, no, 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 sorry, I didn't choose you. Back in the line. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, Jesus will never turn away. Divine election is never a reason for turning someone away. Divine election is always the reason anyone turns to Christ in the first place. Um, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid. They probably don't allow these games anymore at recess, but um, that's probably a good thing. But anyone play Red Rover? All over Red Rover? Anyone play that game? Very, very dangerous game. Very dangerous game. Red Rover, Red Rover, Jacko, come over. And, you know, everyone's there in the line, holding clenched fists, you know, like forming the line, and you've got to come 100 metres away, you know, with all your might to break through and pass by this huge line. I was never a huge kid growing up, so I was just like hanging on to everyone else's arm as we had to go over, um, you know, trying to break through. But don't think of election in that kind of way. When somebody preaches the gospel and you're like, I'm coming to you, Jesus, and it's like the father and the son are in a red rover line, you know, and you've, you know, sorry, bam, bam, you didn't make it through, go back. It's more like a tug of war. And God always wins the tug of war. And if you're on the end and and someone's pulling you and drawing you and pulling you and drawing you and finally you come here, He's never going to say, no, go away. The whole reason you came, the whole reason you were pulled by the Lord is because of divine power and agency that was pulling you, drawing you to himself. You will not be cast out. How did you get there in the first place except God drew you? And this is a more than just a promise of, a promise than just the coming. The promise is actually for the staying. Notice what Jesus says in verse 38. 
I am doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. And his will, verse 39, is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And this is the Father's will, verse 40. Look on the Son, believe in him, be raised up on the last day. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is good news. Christ does not simply keep us for a day. He doesn't simply keep us for a week. He doesn't just keep us for six months. He just doesn't keep you if you're young. He doesn't just keep you if you're in your 20s. He keeps us for all time. This is an unbreakable chain, right? From divine election in eternity past to coming to Christ in some present moment to the resurrection of the dead in the future. If chosen, you come. If chosen and you genuinely come to Jesus, you will be raised on the last day. Think about it. This is the commitment of Christ himself to you. Christ is as committed to his chosen ones as he is committed to obeying the will of his heavenly father. He says, I should lose none of all that God the father has given to me. Think about it. If Jesus didn't keep his people to the end, it would be to his everlasting shame. For he will be failing to carry out the will of his heavenly father. Jesus can no more lose any of his chosen ones, any of his people, than he will dishonour or disobey his father. I came to do his will, and the father's will is that I should lose none. And if that's the father's will, Jesus says, I will lose none. I'll not turn them away, never cast them out. I'll keep them to the end. And there's a fifth promise, verse 44. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. After the third promise, I suppose we could have thought, well, there might be some not given by the Father who will also come to Jesus. So we had promise three, all that the Father gives to Christ, they'll come. But maybe there's a category besides those, right? Maybe there's some who weren't part of those all, and, but here we see that's not the case. No, no, notice the context here is grumbling, verse 41. There's people grumbling. He can't be this messianic manna from heaven. Jesus can't be the manna from heaven. We know this guy. We know his mum and dad. We know he's, where he's from. He's not from heaven. He's not the bread of heaven. He can't be from heaven. Where does this guy get off? I'm of heaven. No, he's from Nazareth. We know Joseph. We know Mary. So Jesus hears the grumbling and he says, settle down. There's no point grumbling. You cannot come. You will not believe unless the Father draws you. That's what he says in verse 44. And to that, right, many of us are possibly liable to say, well, that's not fair. It's not our fault then. But the Bible would have us draw precisely the opposite conclusion. When Jesus says, no one can come unless the Father draws him, it's not for us to say, well, it's not your fault. Rather, it's to say, if you don't come, it's not Jesus' fault. It's not the gospel's fault. So the understanding is, okay, Jesus, if you're so great, if you're so amazing, why aren't people coming to you? If you're the Messiah, if you're all that, if you're the bread of heaven, if you're doing miracles, you've got this good news, shouldn't they just come? Shouldn't they just be drawn to it, drawn to you? Shouldn't they just be flooding into you, Jesus, if you're who you say you are? But then you know the story, right? Jesus will die as a convicted criminal on the cross with hardly a soul who wants to be near him. Has something failed? Well, Jesus hasn't failed. The gospel hasn't failed. The Father hasn't failed. Rather, Jesus makes this absolutely stunning statement. No one comes unless the Father draws them. Again, doesn't that mean if you come, he'd say, no, 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 no. You're not part of the chosen. You don't belong here. Does not mean that. Does not mean that we don't freely offer the gospel. Jesus freely offers the gospel throughout the gospel of John. In fact, the gospel of John, we saw this last week, we get to the very end of the gospel, and John writes, I'm writing this all about Jesus so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in his name you would have 
eternal life. It's the free offer of the gospel. Verse 44 doesn't mean we're not responsible. We'll see elsewhere through the book of John that they, people are castigated in the strongest terms for unbelief. They're responsible for unbelief. What it means is that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation. Is there any other conclusion to be drawn from verse 44? You cannot come. You cannot come unless the Father draws. In one sense, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more kind of Calvinistic verse in the Bible, right? And yet to call it Calvinistic is almost blasphemy, right? Because there wasn't a Calvin for about 1,500 years since Jesus said this stuff. And who ultimately cares what Calvin teaches except that it's in the Bible? It's not a Calvinistic verse, it's a Jesus verse. Now the drawing of God the Father in verses 37 and 34 cannot be reduced to what people call prevenient grace. Um, there would be many Christians who would say, well, yes, you know, we affirm that Jesus said this, it's in the Bible, but it's a prevenient grace that God gives to everyone. He gives everyone this sort of prevenient grace, this grace that means that it's there and all you have to do is just kind of do the next little bit to kind of get in. But that's not what Jesus is saying. It's only God's grace from beginning to end that draws people to Christ. We read this in Matthew chapter 16. Peter says this, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And immediately Jesus says, flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus does not say God keeps you from coming. It says rather you are unable to come unless God draws you. There's no place for vaunted free will. Our wills are not able to freely choose Christ. They must be made new. To see here from the lips of Jesus, we have verses to support unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, effectual atonement, and in this verse presumes the sinner's total depravity. We need the work of God and his grace from the very beginning to end to draw us to Christ. We cannot come to God unless God draws us. And all of this to say, this does not lead us, therefore, as God's people to inactivity, to just sitting around. If God's sovereign in salvation, we don't do anything. We just sit back and let God do the choosing, God do the drawing. I think this is a catapult to action for us. The logic of the Bible is, well, you can't come to God unless God draws, so okay, God, over to you. No, the impetus is quite the opposite. The impetus is for us to pray, to pray. Pray for God to move because he needs to move and he can move. He can move even the hardest of hearts, the hardest sinner in your life who's so far from God. God can move to him, to you, to him. So move to pray. And I hope as well, you see this, brothers and sisters, we are moved to praise God. For if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are a Christian here this morning, it's because of God, entirely because of him. We didn't save ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We only came because one prior to our coming chose us and in time regenerated us and drew us to himself. If you have saving faith in Jesus here this morning, you are a walking miracle. You're a walking miracle because you were dead, dead in your sins, unable to choose God, unable to come. I don't care how good your parents were, what kind of church you're in, if you were baptised as an infant, if you grew up in Sunday school for your whole life, you needed a miracle to come. And no one comes to God Almighty unless he draws them. And that's your testimony if you're a believer in Christ today. Quickly then, here's promise number six. Everyone who hears from the Father 
and learns from the Father comes to Jesus. You see that in verse 45. So there is a coming, right? You've heard me say before, um, the doctrine of God's sovereignty doesn't make us puppets like on a string. Uh, God's sovereignty doesn't do that because a puppet doesn't, puppet doesn't have a will, right? A puppet is moved by a puppeteer, by an external coercion or compulsion. Uh, you just move a string and they move. That's not what God's sovereignty means. God's sovereignty, his grace renews our wills. They were dead, they were bent, only bent on doing evil and then by God's effectual drawing, his supernatural grace and divine power, he gives us new wills, a will to come. So as a reformed pastor guy, I have no problem calling you to come to Christ, knowing that his sheep will hear his voice. And knowing that when the miracle of regeneration is wrought in your heart, you can come and you will come. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to Jesus. And don't miss the implication of this promise. If you don't come to Jesus, the implication is you've not heard from the Father and you've not learned from the Father. So much for thinking there are many roads up the mountain so that we don't have to go through Jesus. No, Jesus says himself, if you don't come to me, you've not learned from the Father and you've not heard from the Father. It's impossible to be God's true disciple and not come to Christ. Conversely, you're not God's true disciple if you've not come to Christ. That's what he says. Whoever learns from the Father, hears from the Father, comes infallibly comes. And the last, promise seven, verse 47, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. It's the simplest promise is the last. We've been revealed these things about election and perseverance and God's irresistible grace and we believe them and we preach them and I commend them to you in the scriptures but even Calvin was careful to say don't get your head lost in the abyss of the doctrine of predestination right Calvin warned about quote indulging in curious inquiries about eternal predestination because he knew some people would sort of get caught up saying, well, like, am I chosen? Am I chosen? Am I elect? How do I know? Am I elect? Listen really carefully to what John Calvin himself says. Quote, they are madmen who seek their own salvation or that of others in the whirlpool of predestination, not keeping the way of salvation which is exhibited before them. And then he says this, faith is a sufficient attestation of the eternal predestination of God. And you go, what does that mean? Faith is a sufficient attestation of the eternal predestination of God. Do you hear that? It's very important. He, he says, don't go for yourself or for others. You know, well, in eternity past, did God choose them? Are they of the elect? Are they on the list? Are they predestined? Are they, are they, are they? Calvin says, you're gonna go mad. You're gonna go crazy. You, because we don't have access to the eternal recesses of the mind of God. But what we do have access to are the promises of God. And the promise of God is this. If you believe... If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are his. It's a simple question. It's a simple equation. Believe in Jesus and you live forever. Whoever believes in Jesus has now in your possession eternal life. Like that starts now. Like, it's not like trust in Jesus, you've got eternal life and cash it in later. Eternal life starts now. Like, we will die, but we will be with him forever. And then on the last day, we'll get our bodies and we'll be in the new creation. Believe in Jesus and you'll live forever. That's the promise. What's the nature of this believing, you ask? Great question. Is it simply just like a, an intellectual assent to truths about Jesus? You know, yeah, I know that he was born in Nazareth. I know that he lived and he died and he rose again. And, you know, like I could tick some boxes. 
It's, a tr- it's true, but it's more than that. Think of all the words in this passage that describe our relationship to faith in Jesus. It's eating, it's drinking, it's coming. It's not just getting a theological test correct. It's not enough to hear without learning, verse 45, and it's not enough to see without believing, verse 40. All of us have heard. Some have learned. All of us have seen. Some truly believe. The Father gives, the Father draws, and the call is still for you to come. As I close, I wonder if there is a miracle at work in your life right now. Maybe even this morning, a miracle at work in your life. Maybe everyone around you here this morning thinks you're a Christian, but you know you're not a Christian. You know you've just been coming, you've been going through the motions, someone just wants you here. Maybe you've been a leader in our church and you haven't really been a Christian. Is there a miracle at work in your life? Can you feel the Father drawing you to himself? The sheep know his voice, planned from eternity, accomplished on the cross, at work in your life, and maybe right now, even now, the call is to come, to eat, and to drink, and to believe, and live. And all that the Father has chosen will come. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for the work of the cross. And we come to him now, uh, looking in him for all that we lack. Father, so we pray that we would feed on Jesus, the bread of life, that we would drink from him and never be thirsty. And Father, we come to Christ needing him for forgiveness for all that we are. And we believe and we trust this morning that Jesus is more than enough if we will but come. And so we pray, Father, that we would believe on the Lord Jesus and in him have life in its fullness. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.